What are you waiting for? Welcome to This Is Not A Dress Rehearsal Podcast. Stop holding your breath, waiting for perfect conditions before you move through the world. Tune in for real stories of real people who understand the freedom to live well. Your host, Bonnie Sewell, is a veteran wealth manager with 12 grandchildren, helping clients over the last 30 years enjoy their wealth. You can listen to all podcasts at www.americancapitalplanning.com slash podcast or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Susan McCorkendale was born and raised in the Garden State. She loves Bruce Springsteen, the New York Giants, and the Jersey Shore. A graduate of Marymount Manhattan College, Susan spent five long, hard minutes pursuing an acting career before making a detour into marketing and has held top spots at Popular Science and Family Circle magazines. Susan's also the mother of two sons, the oldest of whom has high-functioning autism and the younger of whom has taught her the hard way, the wisdom of Irma Bombeck's famous edict, never loan your car to someone you've given birth to. A motivational TEDx speaker, host of the popular online series Flaws of the New Black, and the author of Confessions of a Counterfeit Farm Girl and 500 Acres and No Place to Hide, More Confessions of a Counterfeit Farm Girl, both Amazon best-selling memoirs that chronicle her move with her late husband and sons from suburban New Jersey to a 500-acre beef cattle farm in Virginia. Susan's latest book, Make Peace with Your Grief and Watch Where It Leads You, is based upon her recent TED Talk. A speaker known for her high-energy, humorous, and captivating presentations, Susan's favorite topics are resilience, grief, and the role of humor in helping people bounce back and stay back. Welcome, Susan. Thanks for having me, Bonnie. It's great to see you. You shared your story in three poignant books. Give us a little background, and specifically, I'm interested in how you see the grief process in your life today. Okay, so the books, like we just said, you know, I moved from New Jersey to Virginia, and I launched a blog where I just vented about my disastrous uh, relationships (laughs) with the chickens, mostly the chickens, not really the cows, although they chased me once, which I was not a fan of, (laughs) and I didn't appreciate. So the first two books were based on that. My third book is based on my TED Talk that I gave Mm -hmm. um, about, you know, what it took for me to come to terms with my husband's death in 2011. And, you know, you're asking about grief today. For me, my grief has made me who I am. It's part of what makes me who I am. Just like, I, you know, I can't parallel park. I can't use a flat (laughs) iron, for God's sake. I can't balance my checkbook. I I can't add. And I'm sitting here with Bonnie. Um, (laughs) So my grief is part of me. Like you don't, you never get over it. You don't, you don't get past it. There's none of that. It just becomes part of who you are. And that's okay. Because I wouldn't want to ever leave those people that I love and miss. Sure. So far behind that they're not, you know, in my heart every single day and and making me who I am. Like, you know, I can still see things, I'm sure, through my husband's eyes. And I just start to laugh knowing he would laugh. Or my brother David, who died uh, seven years ago. It's uh-huh. just, I, I think of them. I talk to them. I wish I could call them. It's very strange. So you carry them and it's comforting. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I love that. 
As a woman in business, I'm sure you've been told how to look and sound from those who might be trying to help. <laughs> you joked about your accent in your TED tech, uh, TEDx talk, but clearly you've found your own voice. When I think about your work in speaking and writing, those are two skills that are really in short supply. Most people freeze up at the idea of speaking. Many get paralysis when they're thinking about writing. You've done both very successfully. How did you gain the confidence to pursue those? I was kind of born talking. <laughs> uh, my mother wishes to this minute that I would please just shut up. <laughs> and what she did is she quickly introduced me to books. And I read very early because of my mom's desperation to make me stop speaking. <laughs> and when you read, at least for me, the natural uh, output from that, the natural, you know, I don't know, forward motion, was to write. So I just, I started writing. And I think that because I was reading and because I was writing and I was not making noise, my parents were like, you're great. Just keep going. You're great. Um, which I'm sort of joking about. But I got good feedback. And I wound up with really my dad's an amazing writer, as is my mother. My brothers are super funny people. David, late my late brother David, an incredible comedian, a fantastic mm. stand-up comedian. And you can't do that if you cra can't craft language, if you can't craft humor. It's true. So I, I grew up with that, and I was encouraged to, okay, you have a big mouth, Susan. You like being center stage. Let's just put you on the stage, okay? <laughs> and therefore, you know, I never met a microphone I didn't like either, yeah. okay? So... Uh, made it easier for me to not be afraid to get up on stage and speak. Okay. And made it easier for me to, to sit down and write something and be more willing to say, hey, Dad, you know, would you look at this? I'm thinking it's good, but what do you think? So that makes me wonder, because I know in my own work, everything I try doesn't fly. And uh, when you write and speak, that's sometimes true. that's true, too. So how do you pick yourself up after you've been nicked a little bit by a, a response that wasn't the one you were hoping for? Well, I, um, I tend to take a nap, <laughs> and I, I beat myself up, and I tell myself, wow, that was really bad. Um, and then once I've recovered from that really bad that we should never do, that negative self-talk beating ourselves yeah. I remind myself that, okay, you know, failure isn't fatal, and this is not the end of your life. You will speak again and do a good job. You will write again, and that is not the last good thing you've ever written or the last bad thing you're ever going to write. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're afraid to fail, you're not going to succeed. So I do all of that. Okay. And um, I also sit down and I look at what I just did. Like, I'll look at it recording of a, a, a talk I gave that, oh my God, the first 20 minutes of, I know I was losing it. Okay. Well, if I regrouped, how did I regroup and what can I make a note of for the future so that that doesn't happen again? Okay. And it's, it's the same thing with my work. I have to go in and look at my written work and say, you know what, Suze, you really should have started here. This is the middle. You should have started in the middle. You just know for the next time. you got to yep. do the work. So something we intuitively know is you learn from actually looking at it and evaluating yes. it and it, being afraid is just part of it. Right. Okay. You have to learn from your mistakes. Yep. Okay. So going back to a time, um, and like many women's lives, you've had real ups and downs. And can you take us back to a time when you were raising your sons on your own and overnight became the sole breadwinner and bill payer? What were your biggest money fears at first and how did you tackle them? I was really afraid we'd run out. Mm -hmm. My husband passed away without any life insurance. Oh. Yes, that was frightening. 
Sometimes it still is because I have forever played catch up. Uh, I've got the one who's got the autism. I've got the other one who now is in college. Mm. And I'm so grateful that I was able to save uh, money for him to go to school and I've been able to get loans for him. But I I still feel like I'm behind the eight ball just because of that gap that I, you know, I could, I I could kill him for it. Right. (laughs) Um, But you, you do it. You just keep telling yourself, I can do this. Other people have done this before me and I can do this. And you put one foot in front of the other and you do it. And I'm also very blessed. I have family. You know, I'm not, not one of these people who's completely in the world alone. Mm. And my family would never let anything happen to my sons. Yeah. You know, I yeah. could go by the wayside, but sure. my kids will be okay. <laughs> and so, then you'd stop talking. Right. <laughs> um, you just put one foot in front of the other. You do the best you can do. Okay. So I know at really tough times in my life, I've shaken my fist at the sky and yelled, is that all you got? So in some misguided calculation that, you know, once you get bumped around in life, you've had enough or you're Phil, it's someone else's turn. But losing your husband has not been your only trial. You mentioned your son's trials and your brother. What else have you faced down and then grown from? Because it can feel like piling on. Okay. Well, my younger son suffers from very severe anxiety. And I have had to really be on him, which is not typical for our relationship. So that was really hard. Be on him to make him get help, to make him take the medication that he needed for a short while. That was difficult. But it also, it taught me like that our relationship can evolve. And we can be, uh, I will always be his mom, but I also have anxiety and depression. So I know what I'm talking about. So Mm -hmm. I can come to him as a friend and say, you don't have to listen to me exactly, but it would be cool if you at least hear a little bit of what I'm saying and then go make your own decision. Um, So that's helped me grow, helped my relationship with him grow. And of course, I had a disastrous second marriage, which was very tough, broke my heart. I had to leave. Um, He was seriously abusive. And I never thought I'd be in that position. And one day I just said, if you got to run away, we're running away right now. That's it. And I learned you can do that. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't wish that on anybody. Mm -hmm. But I've learned that, you know, if you put the pieces in place and you have a great support system, which Mm -hmm. not everybody has, you can do it. And you realize then you, you know, you put me on a 500 acre farm. You put me in a spot where this guy thinks he's going to, you know, wrap me as he goes by. Mm. If I can get out of all of that, I can do anything. Mm -hmm. Anything. Yeah. I feel like we could do a whole series on choosing that next spouse. Oh, yeah. Um, I think we should. (laughs) Maybe we will. (laughs) And and I think that um, that may come into the conversation again. But people are messy. Life's Mm. messy. You seem to have captured this in your Flaws is the New Black series. So tell us about that. I love that series. So a long, long time ago, I was giving, it was after Stu passed away, I was giving a talk and I, I was talking about just being an imperfect caregiver. Like I couldn't give Stu a shot and to practice, I shoot this stuff up at the ceiling <laughs> and he'd be like, well, thank you for wasting my medicine. Sorry about that. Um, I couldn't do it. I was an imperfect caregiver. And one day I just said, you know, flaws are the new black, babe. And I realized how true that is. Like we're all so concerned about our imperfections mm-hmm. and we think we're the only ones with these imperfections. Like I'm loud or I say what I feel or I'm stubborn. Well, wait, hold on a second. My stubbornness, my loudness, my saying what I feel, that's all contributed to the things where I've been a success. So my whole feeling is those flaws, hey baby, I'm going to wear them like they are the new black and I want you to do the same thing. Stop. No more putting ourselves down. A whole lot more self-acceptance. Sure. 
We can always work on being better, but it starts with self-acceptance. We accept those flaws about ourselves, and then we can see them as strengths. And when we see them as strengths, we can see the opportunities that they present. And that's, I love the whole flaws of the new black thing for, for all of those reasons. I feel too like women in particular, but everybody, it's so much energy to be something that you're not. That's right. And we kind of live by one thing that says, you know, everybody reveals themselves eventually, whether they mean to or not. And at some point, you lose the energy for keeping up the front. Oh, sure. And so your flaws are going to be obvious, even if you can't see them. That's right. So I love the encouragement of maybe we drop that facade drop a little fac- faster. It's exhausting. Yeah. You know, to pretend to be something you're not is just your brain is working so hard. It's all here and you cannot get on to doing the great work that you could do. Right. Or the things that you just want to do because you're so exhausted from the facade. Yes. So that is almost exactly the point of this podcast. This is not a dress rehearsal because it emphasizes the what are you waiting for nature of it. So. Lots of women struggle to stop talking after they say no. (laughs) And why is no enough? Because no is a complete sentence. And And, and we should probably just stop right there. But I want you to emphasize because I know too many people, and I'll pick on women for a minute, Mm. that because it starts when we're girls. That's right. We don't give ourselves permission to be who we are and say no. So just emphasize that a little bit more strongly. Yep, that's a complete sentence, but... Okay, here's the deal. Mm-hmm. No is a complete sentence. So if you say anything right after your no, whatever you've said is up for discussion and debate, okay? And women, I'm going to say women, mm-hmm. we're afraid. We're afraid of the silence. We're afraid of the pause. We typically, lots of times, are people pleasers. Yep. We want to make you feel better for the fact that I've just said no. Well, Bonnie, you say to me, Susan, can you please be here at 3.30, I no. And then I feel bad because now I've let Bonnie down. Well, you know, Bonnie, I'm supposed to go to the dentist. Well, now we can discuss. Well, can't you move that appointment? <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Because I asked you. Well, and, and really, leave it. if you practice that enough, because this applies to almost every area of your life, if you practice that enough, then eventually when you say no and you don't amplify anything, I have choices. That's and right. my choice is, oh, okay, how would... Another time work. That's right. Right. That's right. It works beautifully. I was. I gave a speech based on this whole no. Is okay. Sentence, and one of the men had read an article. A man had read an article <laughs> I wrote. It happens. Exactly. And he said he tried it with his boss. He was getting ready to leave after uh, the end of the day. And the yeah. boss said, can you stay for a little while longer? And he said no. And he just kept gathering his things. And the next thing he knew, his boss had disappeared from his office door. Right. <laughs> It, that's a, a wonderful solution, and I especially like it because it is. It can be personality basis, not just based, not just gender. So that's, that's right. That's helpful. Okay, switching gears a little bit. You've been a contributing writer to HuffPost, and in November 2016, <laughs> I thought this was so fascinating because while our listeners will be hearing this in the fall of 2020, we're taping in the time of COVID. But you wrote 
back in November 2016, seven reasons working from home isn't working for me. So what, if anything, has changed for you in 2020 as we're all stuck at home working? What's changed for me is I'm uh, I'm uh, four years older okay. and I have figured out what I need to work at home. And if that includes earplugs some days, I put them in. And I have always liked working at home. But when I wrote that piece, I was working with around my second husband who could not stop talking, had the BB see blaring all day long. I was like, I'm just going to commit suicide, <laughs> which is not true, but I wanted to run away. But it's it works for me now. I, I'm lucky. I've pretty much always, you know, except for my marketing career days, you know, I've pretty much always been able to work at home. Yeah. And I, I consider it a blessing that I don't have to go to an office. I don't have the commute. I as well. I'm not putting myself now, especially in harm's way or putting my family in harm's way mm-hmm. by being in an office all day. I, I'm better at it. Well, and I think so much of your work involves reimagining the way you think about things. That's right. And certainly working at home, we've been remote for more than six years and you've worked from home most of your career anyway. It does seem like it just takes some imagination imagination to figure out how we do this and and in the end like so many things we will figure out it's better oh it is better yeah and I think that people who were very uh had a very difficult time with it at first starting in March when they have reached out to me I have said to them I would practice gratitude if I were you I would say to myself I am grateful to have employment I am grateful for this this sweet little table that I'm at right now look how pretty it is I'm grateful that my mother gave me this table whatever it is I would practice gratitude and spin it out so far that by the time you're done with yourself you're sitting there smiling and you feel good right then (laughs) I think that there's a lot to that and some people really struggle to get the negative Nancy or negative chatter out of their head just practice like That's right. pretty it's, much anything else. That's right. And I did hear in your explanation of why it's better minus the second husband. So there you go. <laughs> we, we may come back to that. Yes, minus the second husband. <laughs> so just earning a living in 2020 is kind of a new proposition given our, our shutdown sure. this past spring. But having lived a roller coaster life of experiences, what would you tell others about preparing for the unexpected? I would say to expect the unexpected. Right. Yeah, but my girlfriends who like to tell me that they like to be in control, I just look at them straight in the face. I say, there is no control. Yeah. And at the beginning of this whole COVID thing, when it was, we're living in uncertain times, I'm like, when have they been certain? There is no certainty. All I know is I'm sitting here with you here right now. I don't know what's going to happen when I leave. I don't know what's going to happen. Am I going to get home? I have no idea. There is no no certainty. And it is so much, who is it? Pema Chadron. Like, can you tell I like to read? Uh-huh. Pema Chadron. Everybody run out and get, start where you are, okay? She's uh, brilliant. There is no certainty. All we can do is make peace with the fact that, that this Change is the only thing that's inevitable, that will happen constantly. And if you can be good with the fact that we live with uncertainty, well, then you can go on with your day. And I feel like, yeah, and I definitely feel like from a money perspective, which is our work, that the people that have survived this unprecedented event, which you're right, is such a tired word, but the people that have come through so far have been the people that, of course, expected rainy days, expected trouble from a money perspective that's called an emergency fund, it's called savings, it's called not overspending. There's a whole bunch of ways that you can manage that. And you're absolutely right. While there's no control, it gives you more comfort. If you're a prepper. 
if you plan. have some preparation. Right? Preparation can look like you're a genius when all, all it was was preparation and discipline. That's right. Yeah. If you've set that up ahead of time and you've got your emergency fund, you can live for six months or, or whatever you can do. Yeah. You feel much better navigating right now. Yeah. So the issue of control is so tempting because everything can feel out of control. But I think what you're saying in so much of your work is get over that idea. Mm -hmm. If you want to feel any modicum of control, you need to put some things in place and prepare and you need to work on your mindset. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. It gives you peace. So as a former Jersey girl, you've stayed in Virginia, and I've lived all over, and Virginia is my very favorite place that I've lived. So what do you want listeners to know about how wonderful it is living in Virginia and why you have stayed? You certainly could have left after all the things that happened. I stayed. My entire family from New Jersey definitely thought I was coming home after Stu passed away. (laughs) And I said, no, I'm not. I've made friends here. My younger son has made all of his friends here. Mm -hmm. And I was watching my older son, who was still working on making friends, be completely embraced by our community. Case in point, one night he's walking from work to, I don't know, like the bar to meet friends. He was not driving at the time. And it was raining. And three different people who who we know from town offered to pick him up and give him a ride. Like that. Like, yeah, I didn't know if I was going to go back home to that kind of a tight community right. where everybody kept an eye on each other. Okay. We would come home to food on our porch from people I barely knew with love notes and recipes and use this for this and stuff that was already cooked and just had to go in the freezer. I didn't leave because I love Virginia. It's beautiful. And I've since realized what a great decision that was. I live in a bubble. Mm-hmm. We are so safe here, Bonnie, for the yeah. most point. Yeah. We really are. And I feel lucky every single day that we stayed here. I love Virginia, too. Yeah. So good. Maybe we'll get some more folks to check it out if they're not familiar, because I never was before I lived here. No, I had no idea. I had no idea either. And actually, when I was lucky enough to travel into Europe and I came home, I said, oh, my God, I live in Europe. I mean, it's just so pretty out here with farms and whatnot. You can see, you can appreciate it more. I've done the same thing. I'm like, wait a minute. (laughs) Yeah, I can get this at home. That's right. So I want to just amplify a little bit about how... The fact that you didn't leave, the fact that a second husband didn't work out, I don't need any details on that particular relationship. What I'm interested in amplifying is many women, myself included, like to be paired up. I do better in a couple personally than I do on my own, but I know so many successful, happy women that are perfectly content being by themselves. So now that you've been married twice with very different outcomes and today you're a happy, successful individual... How can you share with others how they might think about the possibilities that maybe, because maybe you thought you had to be paired up. And if you do think that. I am. Oh, you you are. Okay, well then get get telling us. I'll stop. Just get telling us. Um, I I met the most wonderful man almost three years ago. Okay. I was just about to quit dating forever, at least until the turn of the next century or millennium or whatever. (laughs) I was pulling my profiles down off of all the dating sites and I met the most wonderful man. And it was the right time in my life to meet him. I, I, I am always the sum of my experiences. Yeah. I knew what I was looking for, and I was knew, knew what I was looking to avoid. I was, okay. I could, you know, I had all of my my particulars. Like my radar was in great shape. You know, I was looking. I was I was prepared to have to be honest with myself and say, okay, if I don't meet anybody, that's it. I'm done. I'll take a break for a long while. My mother is a very happy single individual. Yes, she really. She's amazing. My mother is amazing. But I met Robert, and it was just. This, it was him. 
And, mm. and we paired up, we travel beautifully together, we live beautifully together, we love each other, we love each other's extended families. What a nice thing. It's, it's lovely. He's funny, he's supportive. I tried to be all of those things for him. And, um, you know, we have been stuck at home since March together. You know, yes. He might combust, right? Right. No, and I don't think that's going to happen. We get a little great. Oh. But, you know, you reach that point in your life where you, you know yourself and you know what you can you are looking for what you cannot put up with. Right. You just know. Deal breakers. Deal breakers. And yeah. you have to be willing. You know, you have to stick to those. If you waver, you're going to make a mistake. Yeah. You know. And that can be expensive, time-consuming, heartbreaking, heartbreaking, name your poison. All of those So things. how did you meet Robert? Because a lot of people think, I've got to go to a bar. Maybe that's where you There's met no him. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not saying that's not a reasonable yeah, right. place to meet, but I just know. London's on a Tuesday at about five in the afternoon. Really? Great place. Produce department. <laughs> not kidding. They're all there stocking up for the week or the next oh, couple of days. Oh, yeah, I never very, thought about that. Lots of cuties. That's so fun. Yeah. But I met Robert on Plenty of Fish. Okay. And I, uh, we were looking at each other's profiles and you can tell, at least we could at the time, yeah. years ago, both of us were looking. And I'm looking at his profile, and he's very cute, but he's kind of dressed like, I don't know, very preppy. And I'm like, oh, it kind of looks like a guy who'd go to polo. And I don't like guys. Like players Not your type. Me. No, those are mm -hmm. players. So I'm about to be like, okay, forget it. And I go, no, no, no. I mean, like the eternal, the hopeless optimist. I'm like, let me look at a few more pictures. And the next one I click on, there he is sitting outside on like a deck. He's all messy. He looks like he just woke up and he's drinking out of a cup that says, home is where my dad is. Aww. And that was it. Oh. That was it. I was like, I got to meet this guy. So, you know, I think we need to put this out into the world. I met my husband, Murray, on eHarmony. I was yes. living in Miami. He was living here. And I'd been through 1,497 profiles. Didn't date all those people, wow. just FYI. That's a lot of profiles. A lot of profiles. Yeah. But, you know, I saw that I have an airplane, I have a boat, I have lots of fancy mm. cars. And I always wondered where I might fit in mm. with all those things. And I pull up Murray's pictures, and there are pictures of him with his grandkids playing oh, wow. board games yeah. on the car. And I'm like, that's my that's guy. That's Turns my out guy. he's a great salesman. He thought about this. <laughs> but he actually is so that he's guy. also a great marketer. <laughs> he knew how to position his brand. Yeah. And he did it well. get the exact audience he wanted. Exactly. Because he didn't want one of those chicks who wanted a boat. Right. And I was traveling with a list, a written list. I'm no kidding. And I had to check a lot of boxes because for the, I came out of a verbally abusive marriage and I just couldn't go back there. And I, but, but of course it's always two people, right? You can make the other person the bad person, but it's always two. And so I had to figure out how I lost my voice, all of that. All but, of that, yes. But all that to say, like you, I needed to find mm -hmm. what I wanted and stay away from everything I, I didn't want. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's okay to define what you want. Apparently it's a <laughs> good thing to good do. Thing. <laughs> I, I lacked the confidence to do that for most of my life. I so I that. appreciate you sharing your story because I think that uh, people look at your physical appearance, which our listeners can't see, but she's a stunning put together woman. And it might look like you have got it all going on every day. Never judge a book by yeah. its cover. Right, right. So right? like I was going to do with Robert. I'm glad exactly, I exactly. So it's been extremely helpful sharing that. So I, I would like to know a little bit more about the new book. Oh, okay. My, my third book? Yes. The one that's based on the TED Talk or the one that I'm working on? The one that you're working oh, on. Oh, okay. Well, that, yeah, so it's it's almost, you know, ready for uh, public consumption in the way of pitching it to an agent, etc. Uh -huh. And um, the working title is Greener Pastures. Wow. And it's a, it's 
takes up after Stewie passed away. Mm-hmm. And really, my mission, what I'm hoping to convey, is that we can all move on to greener pastures every single day. And that whatever life throws at you, you can. You can build resilience. It's like a muscle. You can work it every single day and you can move on. It comes down to treating yourself better, talking to yourself better. And it comes down to having faith in yourself. So when somebody all of a sudden presents an opportunity to you and you're like, I, I can't do that. What are you crazy? No, no. Try it, really. And usually the universe does not throw something in your lap that's not meant for you to say yes to. Mm. Okay. So it's about making it from where I was and what I went through and helping my kids to where I am now. I always wanted to give a TED talk. Well, guess what? I did that. Mm-hmm. And, and that's probably not it for me just because I, I won't let that be it for me. But I, especially now with people being, you know, very concerned and rightly so about the future. Well, it's never certain. So just, you know, em- embrace what you've got and treat yourself well, accept yourself and Put one foot in front of the other and, and never say die. Yeah. Know? Never say die. Just keep moving forward to your own greener pasture every single day. When do you think that book might be out for people to enjoy? Well, if I can just find an agent, I'll let you know. <laughs> okay, so we'll look for that. <laughs> in the meantime, we have your other books. You do, and yes. they tell your story in different parts of your life. So just tell us a little bit about those other books so they sure. know how the series is going. So the first book is Confessions of a Counterfeit Phone Girl. And that was written like within the first year of my moving from New Jersey okay. in suburbia down to a 500-acre beef cattle farm in the middle of no place. Pretty, pretty, <laughs> but no place. And my trials and tribulations and my husband becoming a farmer and my kids becoming unglued and me feeling like a fish out of water. That's the first book. It's very funny. And if you've ever been uprooted from your surroundings, whether you grew up on a farm and then your significant other plopped you in a city, you can relate to... 14 times, but yes, I think I can relate. And then the next book is called 500 Acres, No Place to Hide, More Confessions of a Counterfeit Farm Girl. And that was supposed to be more farm funnies. And actually, it's it's farm funnies, but also chronicles my husband's illness mm. and everything that we went through just to try to save his life. Mm. I and mean, then believe it or not, you're going to laugh. Yes. Uh, I know that sounds a little crazy, but we, that's how we handled it. Okay. That's how we chose to handle it with humor. And it is a very funny book. It's a very touching book, but it's, it's a really good book. And my final book, the third one is, is based on my, on my Ted talk. Okay. And my feeling when I, I, I did that talk is simply that you don't move on, you know, You have to, for me, I had to make myself be still and make peace with my grief Mm -hmm. and just let it, you know, become part of me. Mm -hmm. Because what I was doing, I was running away from it. And all I was doing was exhausting myself. Okay. And then, you know, that's just unhealthy. So it is far better to make peace and absorb it. And then, you know, I took my grief and I turned it over and I did amazing things for my kids. Of course I'm supposed to, but I hadn't been able to yeah. for so long. Did great things for them. And then I, I went forward and I was like, I'm giving a TED Talk. I'm going to do this. And I turned it into doing something good in my little corner of the universe. So we've heard a lot about the tools that you use and how you manage to crawl back out of that grief. But I, I think there, there there's inflection points and in that sometimes uh, women in particular, but anybody suffering through a grief process might think that I'm going to get swallowed by it. Sure. It feels so all-consuming. Sure. Did you have days like that? Yes, of course. Weeks like that, months because like that? Because if I stopped moving, that's what was going to happen. Yeah. I was going to be swallowed into yeah. like the great whale of 
hell. And did you ever feel like you were in, you can't control how other people react to you, but did you ever feel judged in your grief by someone trying to help? Well, yeah, and people don't mean that. They just say the wrong things. They say, you'll get over it. You're strong, Susan. You'll move on. I'll get over it. I mean, if you heard my talk, I'm like, so now my husband's death is a bridge and I can, right. I can just, you know, get across. Like, they mean well. Yeah. Um, and my feeling is when someone you love is grieving, you show up, you shut up, and you listen. Mm. They That's may not good speak, advice. But when they do, uh, just be quiet. Just listen. Yeah. If they ask you for your advice, they ask you if you've ever been through anything similar, that's the time to tell your story. But until that happens, no, it's all about that person. And you are just there to bear witness. Interesting. Okay. A fundamental belief that we hold and one of our whys for this podcast is that sharing our real stories that we learn from each other, get to know each other, and we can bridge that distance from I don't know her. She, I might say and do things and think things about her and even to other people. But if I knew her, if I stood in her shoes for a while, and you can replace her with him. But the idea is women are sometimes sucking it up and not sharing their stories. And it makes them appear unapproachable. Mm-hmm. And so it gets worse for them. There's just a whole bunch of things connected to that. So what story can you share with our listeners about how you, Susan, know that this, this life, this is not a dress rehearsal? I know that this is not a dress rehearsal simply because uh, late in life, I lost Dewey. I never expected to be a widow. Mm-hmm. I never expected to lose my husband. I've known, I knew Stu since I was 17. Aww. And we got married when I was 25. Uh-huh. He was 12 years older than I am. Mm-hmm. I thought that he was going to be around forever. Sure. And we were going to be pals. And because he was older than me by a lot, uh, he took care of me. He, he just doted on me. Okay. Like I thought he was going to be here forever. So I learned hard and fast that this is not a just rehearsal. And then my brother passed. And I was like, same thing, kind of over again. Just the fact that you could lose a person and never see them again. You're never going to see them again. You know, I will say a billion years ago when I was in college, you know, back when we all took stegosauruses to school, or at least I did. I don't even um, know what that means. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, not a school bus, anyway. Um, Oh, Millions of years ago when I was in college, I had an amazing professor. She was also my advisor. And she said to me one day, she goes, I always want you to keep doing things the way you do them. Because you act like you know that this is not a dress rehearsal. And Uh I looked at her like, say that again. And she did. And I said, yeah, I get She goes, you just go for it. You always just go for it, Susan. You like know that you're not going to have this chance again. I said, well, no. At some point, I'm going to die. And I don't want to be on my deathbed saying, I wish I had. Oh, if only I had. Why didn't I try? Yes. And do you hear, like I hear too often, oh, you're fearless. Are you fearless, Susan? No, of course not. <laughs> Filled with self-doubt. <laughs> Me too. I'm riddled. Right up until the moment I get on the stage, right? right? And they got the mic. And I, I'm almost positive that the audience can hear me shaking through the, through the sure. little mic. Yeah. No, but then I open my mouth. Right. And I, I take my deep breath. And I, as soon as the first couple of words are out, or as soon as you start, it's like, I imagine it's like the same thing for a pro football player. Yeah. Or what have you. As soon as you take that, that first snap... That's it. You're on the, you're on your way. Yeah. Fear is fuel. fuel. Fear is fuel. Exactly. Yes. 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 If you can't beat fear, do it scared. 
There you go. I think that's wonderful. I I really appreciate you saying that because it's just a fantasy that people aren't afraid. They just do it anyway. And if you really weren't afraid, that'd probably be reckless. That's not what women who get going do. They're not reckless. No reckless. Okay. So we, you know, we asked for the year of your birth prior to the podcast, just to have a little fun here at the end. So, uh, you know, I won't go into the year of your birth. That's not why we're going to say it. But it's interesting that if we go from any birth year to about five years later, we know that people start to learn about money. And I even didn't realize before I did the research that that's how early you start learning about money. So if we go back to, I don't know, somewhere in the 60s, uh, the average cost of a car was $3,500. And the average uh, cost of a gallon of gas was 32 cents. And if you'd spent that 3,500 in 60 something to buy an average car, you'd today you'd have to spend $27,000. So that's inflation. And life has an inflation, in my opinion. So if you knew then what you know now about money and, and all the things that have happened to you, I mean, obviously, we can never go back. But if you what would you tell your five year old self who's starting to learn about money in your family about money? How what would you say to her as she grows about what she should know what any girl should know about money before she, before she needs to partners up. That's right. Starts working. All of the things that we will do. Okay, so before she partners up, she needs to know that she can handle money. Mm-hmm. That she needs to understand that money is not math. True. Because I had a hang up there. Ah. That's my thing. So, and she needs to know that she can do the math. Yes. I don't care if it takes her 15 minutes and it takes her brother 30 seconds. You can do the math. Great point. And we're not going to give up because you can do this. You can do anything you put your mind to. So first of all, you can handle the money and you always need to know where the money is. Okay. So so once you're partnered up, you need to have your big girl pants on and your voice in place. And you need to say, okay, sweetheart, let's have the conversation. I'm bringing my books. I want you to bring your books and we're going to. Look at where the money is, because you need to know, mm-hmm. and you need to not be afraid to ask. Mm-hmm. And and I learned the hard way. You got to learn to insist yeah. on life insurance. True. You must. True. And so, you know, of course, in our shop, we don't sell any products. But I still say, if you've got anyone to take care of, including yourself, you need life insurance, that's just being responsible. And there's a responsible way to evaluate what's correct for you. So those are great points. And I I couldn't agree more. And I love hearing we're going to try to get confirmation from every guest that every child should know about money. Every child should know about money. And and it should be separated from math. You taught me that the first time I met you. Yes. And it should be separated separated and they should be taught and encouraged and encouraged to play games right you know really uh, let's hold master monopoly shall we yes you know like i always let my brothers win i I was too stupid to yes holy cow and maybe we won't play the stock market game which teaches short-term thinking but we can play a version of that as long as the context is to show you what a stock can do and then we think long term because right. we don't want we've actually we're actually in a period now where day trading's made a resurgence and there's some real trouble spots around I'm that because sure. people who probably shouldn't be doing that might be doing that. So I, I appreciate that thought. Term, because did I yeah. expect to be a widow at the right. age of 49? No. So it would be wonderful to have known long term because no one expects that to happen. 
Well, and what we know about behavioral finance, how do people behave with their money? We know that I, I can't really sell retirement to a 30-something. That concept is too far. Too They're far. not buying it. What I can sell is choices. You want to start a business? Do you want to stay home and take care of an elder or a child? So we can sell choices. Right. And that's true for every stage of life. And everybody likes to have their choices. So if you present appropriate, age-appropriate choices, they're buying in. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this is our bonus question. I can hardly wait. <laughs> <laughs> My brother-in-law, uh, Mark Sewell, uh, lives in Fort Lauderdale. He might be a super fan of a certain New Jersey singer. <laughs> in 1967, Bruce was being his 18-year-old self in the Castiles. I think I'm saying that right. Thank you, I'll Okay. Yes. So how much do you love Bruce Springsteen? I, of course. I love Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> I mean, I grew up at the time when, uh, I think it was WPLJ, did a big uh, poll, and uh, they got all the teenagers and the kids to vote on whether or not to make Born to Run, the New Jersey State Youth Anthem. And we were voting <laughs> left and right, and, and we did it. Cool. And, you know, and it is, I think, still today. Of course, how, you know, of course I love Bruce Springsteen. Like, yeah. I, I play the piano, and I'm, I'm terrible, but I can play, you know, with the sheet music, just a few of, of his pieces, just cool. parts of them. Yeah. And it brings me so much happiness. I absolutely love him. Dear Sons participate no they laugh at me (laughs) but my brothers love Bruce Springsteen and so does my mother very good Mm -hmm. well Susan I just want to thank you for joining us on our podcast we wish you continued happiness and success thank you Bonnie it was really nice of you to invite me today I'm very flattered I can't wait to you roll this whole thing out and I can listen to all of them because this is brilliant the whole this is not a dress rehearsal is very brilliant well I appreciate that and we look forward to more guests like you if you would like to learn more about Susan McCorkendale along with her speaking and writing go to https colon forward slash forward slash susanmccorkendale.com backslash. And of course, that's in our show notes as well. susanmccorkendale.com. Thank you, Susan. Thanks, Bonnie. This podcast and any related material is provided for general information and entertainment purposes only and do not constitute accounting, legal, tax, investment, or other professional advice. For professional advice in any realm, contact the appropriate professional. We assume no representation or warranty, express or implied, for accuracy or completeness of content. We assume no responsibility for information contained in the podcast and disclaim all liability in respect of such information, but not limited to any liability for errors, inaccuracies, omissions, or misleading or defamatory statements. Links to external websites are provided solely for your convenience. We accept no responsibility for any linked sites or their contents. Use of this podcast and its content constitutes an explicit understanding and acceptance of the terms of this disclaimer.